Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of The Political Party, this one featuring Conservative MP Tim Lawton. Not the only Conservative MP you can hear on the recording, I don't think. Quite a few Conservative MPs came down to support him and were at the back and created quite the atmosphere. I think it was a novelty for anyone who was down there to see um, see them behaving in a, in a parliamentary way, shall we say. It was uh, it certainly tickled me throughout the evening. Tim was great. His stories are magnificent. Listen out for the ones about him being appointed to and indeed... Uh, Removed from government, they were my highlights, really. So here he is, episode five with Tim Lawton. Good evening, hello. Hello and welcome to the political party. I'm Matt Ford. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Excellent. Some regulars, give me a cheer if this is your first time. About half and half, excellent. Since the last gig, the month of rebellion we've had, particularly in the Conservative Party, has to be said, it's quite extraordinary. David Cameron probably thought, he didn't do too badly in the local elections, to be fair to him. He's thought, right, I'll nip over to Russia, build a few bridges over there, nip over to America, see Obama, that's always good news. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I can't, I, I've got to be honest, like, usually, in any line of work, when the boss goes away, it's a bit of a slack week. <laughs> in any work, isn't it? The boss goes away, you think, well, we'll finish it for, we'll go down the pub every night. And we'll probably have a few at lunchtime. And uh, I'm not going to wear a tie to work. Yeah, wh- whatever it is, whatever your act of rebellion. The Tory party's gone fucking crazy. They've been getting, they've been getting shit-faced all lunch. Half of them have been turning out. It's been an incredible week of rebellion in the Tory party. Absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's just, as a government, I feel for David Cameron, because actually, even as a Labour supporter, I quite liked him before the last election and thought he's a genuine moderniser. My opinion is the reason why he hasn't got a majority of his own is because he didn't modernise the Tory party enough, not the other way around. And I wouldn't mind seeing a fairly socially liberal Conservative party run the country. If it's a choice between, you know, I'd rather Labour win, but in the event that Labour lose, let's have a decent Tory party run in the country. And I think David Cameron sort of represents that. So I feel sorry for him that he can't keep everything in order. I just sort of imagine, like, he goes away, then Clegg's in charge, who no one's going to listen to. <laughs> the deputy, no one, no one ever listens to the deputy chief exec. It's a... It's a job description that might as well not exist in any organisation. All the Tory MPs around the office getting drunk, no ties on. Nick Clegg's going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, well, Dave, so I am actually the Deputy Chief Exec, so uh, can we just settle down, please? Deputy Chief Exec this, mate. Down above, down above, down above. That's basically what's happened. And the, what, is, what I find incredible is the defence of some of the Tory MPs. And grandees like Nigel Lawson, who, of course, we all know that the Conservatives are split on Europe. That's always going to be the case because it's, in fact, most of us are. Labour split on Europe. The Liberal Democrats are split on Europe. As a country, we're split on Europe. I think the Tories almost have to embrace that split as adequately reflecting public opinion in an odd way. So I think they're the only party that genuinely does. They've got this split. What? On the other hand, however, what you also have to understand is just what is good political management. You know, just after a local elections when Nigel Farage seems to be very attractive, it's probably not the best thing after the Queen's speech, for people like Nigel Lawson, uh, Norman Lamont, Philip Hammond, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, all of them sort of chipping in uh, with these comments about, well, we probably should. You know, if I was given the... I support David Cameron, but given the choice, I'd vote against membership of the EU. That's basically what they're saying. Nigel Lawson's defence of chucking in these grenades was, I'm, I'm not being disloyal, I'm just contributing to the intellectual debate. <laughs> you try that next time you have a row with a mate. Mate, can you stop fucking telling me which way it is to Derby, mate? I'm sick of your backseat driving. Oh, I'm sorry, mate. I was just, con- I was just contributing to the intellectual debate. <laughs> I wasn't undermining you, dear. In the way that they've done it, like, there's always a period where, I remember when Labour had it during the local elections a few years ago, where everyone thought David Miliband was going to resign. You had Pernell go, 
and Hazel Blair's go. And it was just that bit. I don't know if anyone's ever been on the pitch at a football match. There's a bit after the final whistle where about 30,000 people really want to go on the pitch. And I'll show this by going, on the pitch, on the pitch. So people know they want to go on the pitch. But you need, like, the first two or three to go on and get past the stewards. And everyone just goes, yeah, yeah, it's piece piss now. I'll just nip on the grass and then nip back on. And it's the same with any sort of cabinet rebellion. You need the first three or four to go on. And then everyone else goes, fuck it, I'm having a bit of this. <laughs> Run around on the grass and then go on. Like, that's basically what's happening. But it's the most polite pitch invasion ever. They're all just going, sorry, would you like to have a go at the EU? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, after you, please, please. The stewards are helping them onto the pitch. Incredible. What I love most about the Euro Rebels is they're proper like, you never get, all the Euro skeptics I know are tough. They're really, like, Farage is proper tough, isn't he? Like, when you see him interviewed, there's no umming and ahhing. It's always, look, successive prime ministers have let this country down, they've rode roughshod over the wishes of the British people, every single prime minister, including this one, is a coward. Bang, right? <laughs> no umming. No, I mean, no, I mean, absolutely 100% definite. Like, all the Eurosceptics in the Tory party are tough people, they know their lines. You never meet a weak Eurosceptic. You never get a Eurosceptic on News 24 going, Hello, I'm Simon Dwibblesworth. And I'm a Eurosceptic. I'm standing up for Britain. They're always, like, tough people. That's what I like about them. I like the fact that they know what they're talking like they, f- they feel passionate. That's important for people to sort of coalesce around. I just have this view of this permanent rebellion that now feels like it's going on in the Tory party, that because you have all these different factions, like everyone's trying to prove how Eurosceptic they are. Like sort of Eurosceptic rebels walking around Parliament wearing leather jackets, <laughs> smoking the odd fag. So you think you're Eurosceptic, do you? <laughs> Would you vote to leave the EU? Right. Would you leave? Would you vote to leave the European Court of Human Rights? Mm, Impressive. Would you uh, ban all foreign imports? No, of course not. Pussy. (laughs) Call yourself a wreck. I love the idea of them sort of hanging right. Not just being in rebellion about Europe, but about everything. Sort of like hanging around the terrace of Parliament, having a beer. When the division bell goes, oh, off to vote, are we? <laughs> like a little bitch. <laughs> I mean, imagine, like, children rebelling in my era was like Kevin the Teenager on Harry Enfield, people, like, listening to Oasis loud or, like, smoking a bit of weed. I mean, you're a sceptic in the Tory party. You're showing you how to rebel. Imagine if... There were teenage kids in this country rebelling by being Eurosceptic. Oh, God, we're having awful problems with our 13-year-old. What is it, weed? Listening to gangster rap? No, bloody hell. He says he won't eat his, tillin- he won't eat his tea until we repatriate pals from Brussels. I mean, there's just no talking to him. Got big posters of Ian Duncan Smith on his wall. Really quite concerned about it. I mean, it must be difficult. I feel sorry for the people who are pro-European in the Tory party. Because it must feel like you're sort of slightly endangered or slightly not welcome. Like, I'm new Labour. And in the Labour Party at the moment, that is difficult. I sort of feel like I'm allowed in, but I'm sort of permanently under suspicion. Like, I feel like I'm... And as a result, you don't really know, because you feel like you're being disloyal by being fucking sensible. (laughs) Can I get an amen? (laughs) So what's the 
Ed Miliband do it? No, no, no. Ed Miliband's the problem. I'm fine. I've, I'm, I'm Labour. I'm cool, man. I, I'm not part of the problem, dude. Get your hands off me. What's it? I feel like I'm permanently under suspicion. I just feel like if you're pro-European in the Tory party, you're, sort of, you're almost there. You're at the football match, but you're in the wrong end. You're sort of almost... You're supporting the team, but you've basically... You've gone into the derby end at a Forest game. You made a, a right bloody fool out of yourself. And it, is, it must be like... For those who like to see... You know, any of us who've worked for a political party, there's nothing worse than disunity. It really... It actually gets people down. If you work for the party, it, it can make you depressed because you just think, oh, come on, let's get on and fight our opponents. Let's fight the Labour Party. Let's fight the Liberal Democrats if you're in the Tory party. It must just be like... Ken Clark must just feel like a Millwall fan. <laughs> It must just sit out and go, oh my God, I thought we got over all this and then they started kicking off again. I can't believe <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the poor guy. I mean, the local elections are incredible, weren't they? Uh, most of us here probably wouldn't have been able to vote because, you know, county Camden elections don't, don't affect us in London. But what strikes me at the moment is that the three main, and I wouldn't say the political parties, but the three main party leaders specifically aren't turning people on. The people don't really feel... People have... This is an era where actually people are quite politically interested. They're interested in what's happening to their community, whether it's globalisation, immigration, whatever it is. People have, I think we're actually, and not just as a result of the coalition, because if Labour won, there would have had to have been cuts as well. So I think we, we all have to be sort of fair in this room and say that we're all going to live through a period after the global financial crisis of a certain amount of social and economic upheaval. And that usually turns people onto politics. But when you look at David Cameron and Nick Clegg and, and Emil Miliband, I don't feel that people are really... Sticking to those people, which is why Farage is just this incredible, like, rebellious character where you think, fucking hell, it can be exciting. He's basically, he's the guy who, like, everyone else is in the office and he's on a party boat going down the Thames <laughs> saying, this is politics! Come on! You don't have to be boring anymore! <laughs> Come on! That's what it feels like. Shit, they're having a great time over there. Maybe I should join you, Kip. It just looks like so much more fun. I bet they have great time at their conferences. But they don't talk about recycling <laughs> and LGBT issues. I bet they're getting shit-faced. But they go, oh, sod this, let's go down to strip club. String East, String East. But they're having a great time. That's the problem is that like, Farage makes it look like, almost like phantom politics. Like, oh, it's easy. You just say what you think. Yeah, but none of it adds up, Nigel. Who gives a shit? <laughs> People bloody love it. And they tell you, like, if you add up any of UKIP's promises, they're spending, they're spending, man, some fucking dude are, but who cares? But I, I would never vote for them, but I'm glad they exist. Because when you have to sit and watch politics all the time, you're grateful for these sort of bursts of colour. And Nigel Farage is just fucking... Did anyone here vote UKIP, by the way? <laughs> one guy, one guy. Hello, mate, what's your name? Alan. Alan, from last time. It's Alan, everyone. <laughs> Alan, the Northern Tory. How's it going, mate? You've gone UKIP, mate. How come you've gone UKIP? Put a bit of pressure on the Tories. Put a bit of pressure. Oh, there's something about UKIP people that always talk like that, don't they? There's never like, you never meet a UKIP person that talks any different. Put a bit of pressure on the Tories. <laughs> You're the sort of guy I want to get pissed with. That's important in politics, isn't it? I think. Like it. Oh, man. Just always, like, UKIP people, I just imagine them. Always just like this. Hi, I'm Godfrey Chisholm. Run the local pub. Vote UKIP. Just like proper, <laughs> proper, proper tweed-wearing men. Bad, isn't it? You just look at the... 
Like, like the YouTube at the moment are sort of like the naughty kids who are rebellious, who you know when you grow up, unless you're Alan, <laughs> you probably won't stick with. But you think, you know what, just for a week, I'm going to go around their house, watch some 18s, <laughs> play a bit of pool. Because that's sort of what they're offering, isn't it? Just a bit of fun, a bit of sort of time away from politics. Ed Miliband, who... My fear is actually that, that there are certain implications to UKIP's relative success. And one of them is that other... Part, I think the most important thing for a leader, as well as vision and as well as good communication and decency, is to be yourself. I think that's where Gordon Brown got woefully found out, was because at the start of his premiership, he was saying, I'm a serious man, and there's a lot to be serious about. <laughs> and by the end, he was just sort of going... <laughs> and then calling people bigots, which wasn't a good strategy for, for success. I think if it had stuck to, look, I'm just serious. That's the way I am. And, like, you know, back me or sack me for that. And if Ed Miliband just said, look, I am a nerd. That's just the way I am. And if David, you know, David Cameron and Nick Clegg have to embrace their backgrounds and embrace their personalities, I think people would actually like them a lot more. And Farage sort of lives his. My fear is that Ed Miliband is going to look at the fact that David Cameron called UKIP uh, fruitcakes, loonids, and closet racists, see that they did well, and start thinking, hmm. <laughs> Just worried that he's going to sort of turn up to Parliament one day with massive red shoes and a fucking silly wig on. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to live next door to him. Am I right, guys? What's in this bucket? Oh, Christ. This is going to be awful. I don't want, I don't want Ed Miliband... I want Ed Miliband to be himself. The problem is... He's useless. <laughs> he, is being, he is being himself. <laughs> oh, it's good. I mean, did you hear him on The World at One? Did people hear the interview? It is one of the worst interviews I've ever heard. He's asked 13 times whether his spending plans mean that Labour would borrow more in order to try and fund growth. To which he, of course, should have said, yes, absolutely, there's an economic case to be made for borrowing more, which I think we all, on some level, can understand. Instead, he sort of tries to deny that that would be the case. So he's asked 13 breathless questions. And then at one point, the most frustrating bit for me was when Martha Carney says to him, Oh, uh, Ed Miliband, so you've been going up and down the country. Uh, what are people saying to you? What are people asking you? Now, in political interview terms, that is Martha Carney saying, if you're having a bit of a bad one, mate, I'll give you one question to have a pop at the government. Right? That was his opportunity to say something like, uh, look, people are asking me. People <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are asking me, you know, it's tough out there. <laughs> it's tough out there, look. <laughs> As far as I'm aware, I'm the only person who can do an Ed Miliband impression. As far as I'm aware, I'm the only person who wants to. <laughs> Even his kids are like, can you just do someone else, Dad? You fucking... But it was an opportunity for him to say, look, people are asking me, how can I afford to pay the bills? What will Labour do to bring down the deficit but make sure that I can keep my job? You know, I mean, literally, that probably is the question he should be asking. It's like, mate, do you know what he said? When presented with this open goal, he went, oh, what are people asking me? Uh, well, uh, I went to school the other day, and uh, you might be interested in Martha, and uh, uh, someone asked me what I thought about uh, the price of a, a first-class stamp going up to 60p. <laughs> well, call that election now, Mr Cameron. <laughs> Stick a fork in him, because he's ready. The Labour war machine cranks it. A postage stamp! That was his big fucking... What? No, mate. No, mate. 
I just had awful visions of him at the next election going, and this election, Britain, is about three things. It's about crime, it's about the economy, and it's about ending once and for all the awful, awful reality of Kinder Surprise Eggs that have no toys in them whatsoever. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what people get known for phrases. They, like, apparently Sherlock Holmes never said elementary, dear Watson. Like, whenever I think of Edmund Mann, I always imagine him just going, Come on. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure he's ever said it. It's what I always imagine him saying. But you compare him, you know, we talk about Farage. You, you compare his style to Farage's on anything. Like, Edmund Mann just ums and ahs, he's just long-winded, prattling about on his answers. You could ask Nigel Farage literally anything. You could have, Nigel, what did you have for your breakfast? Toast, tea and a telegraph. No other way. Perfect, right? <laughs> Bang. He's nailed it. He knows what he's doing, right? He ain't looking about. Ed Miliband, what do you have for breakfast? Look, I don't want to talk about stuff like that. Look, I don't, I don't think people are interested in that sort of tittle-tattle, to be honest. Yeah. I think there are bigger issues. I can get on with it. And as, as for Cameron calling UKIP loonies, racist, closet lunatics, whatever he called them, closet loonies and lunatics and racists, uh, just such a bizarre tactic to openly uh, be so rude about an opponent. But obviously, you know, way back when UKIP, I think people do have concerns actually about their membership. So David Cameron was saying something that a lot of people were concerned about. But obviously, as a party leader, it's not. Uh, sort of done etiquette, really, to, to behave like that. What I quite like the idea of is that David Cameron wasn't just slagging off UKIP. He was slagging everyone off. That was just the bit that people latched onto. I love the idea that David Cameron sits at home with a really belligerent view of his opponents. And just depending on what day you get him, you'll get a different opinion. I love the fact that he sits there. UKIP, loonies, closet racists and clowns, the Socialist Worker Party, tree-hugging morons, greens, twats... <laughs> That <laughs> he's got a really like, nasty attitude towards his opponents. I mean, the problem with saying that people were fruitcakes and loonies is, of course, that he was right. <laughs> but he was also right about every political party in this country. Now, if you've ever volunteered for any party, you will know that every single party is full of absolute... I mean, there's fruitcakes. Just people that should not be allowed near other people. <laughs> It attracts, politics attracts some of the greatest minds in the country. People who are genuinely dedicated to public service, some economic geniuses, brains that Britain needs and hearts that Britain needs as well. It also attracts a lot of plankton. <laughs> it att- like no other industry I've ever worked in. Some of the weirdest people I've ever met. Some of the str- I met a guy when I was working for the Labour Party in Warrington on some local election campaign who, I was sort of like the young guy from the party and I was sort of trying to help them campaign. And this guy, he's an MEP now, he couldn't stand the fact that... Uh, name him, name him. <laughs> Brian Simpson. <laughs> Did you know who it was? <laughs> no way. Did you guess that? <laughs> Brian Simpson, right? Do you know him? No, no, God, no, he's not. Simpson is this... Well, you back me up on this. Simpson, he didn't like me very much. So what he would do is, I'd sit in a meeting and say something, and he'd, he'd shout me down. So I'd say, I think what we need to do is, you know, we've only got four weeks left on the campaign, and then we just need to knock as many doors as possible and record where the Labour voters are. I've never heard anything so bloody stupid in all my life. 
No, 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 no. What it's about, what it's about, what it's about, right? It's about getting out there. It's about getting out there, talking to people on his bloody doorstep. So that's what I've just said. No, 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 no. Face to face, man. That's what it's all about. Look why it sounded like Peter Kay. Door knocking, door knocking, door knocking, door knocking. <laughs> he would shout me down. And then, he, he's the sort of guy, I don't know if he's done this to you, but even when he's helping you out, he's telling you off. So I say something like, oh, Brian, I've got to get back to Nottingham, mate. Uh, what's the best route? You follow the signs to Macclesfield, right? <laughs> All right, mate, fucking hell. I was only asking. There was a guy in Stoke-on-Trent, talk about loonies. I mean, you, you know if you think... I don't think I'm meeting enough mad people in my life. <laughs> Get a bus to your local council. Go and watch a full council meeting. Because I'll tell you what, out of 60 councillors, there'll be about six that are any good, and the rest of them just need shelter. <laughs> broadly. <laughs> broadly. Broadly, that's just some weird people in there. <laughs> There's just, a, there's just a lot of... There was one guy in Stockholm... This isn't... I mean, this is just off the scale. This guy, he was expelled from the Conservative Party after this, but he was a, he was a local councillor. And this, is, this, is, this was in the media, this is true. They found child porn on his computer, right? He was uh, expelled from the Conservative Party, but he wasn't expelled as a councillor because he didn't receive a custodial sentence and therefore didn't miss two full council meetings. <laughs> so he was allowed to remain as a councillor. He, he was an independent councillor. At the next election after that, obviously, everyone in the area knew about this about him. And he got re-elected. <laughs> what the fuck? How do you come out? This guy's a paedophile. <laughs> yeah, but I'm really not buying your stuff on uh, the economy, mate. And you ain't got a crate, so... Uh... <laughs> but I cannot believe... Like, I was just... And I would, people would chat to him at the council. I'd be like, how can you talk to this guy? Like, he's basically a sex offender. They're like, well, he got elected... That's all that matters. I remember the stuff that goes on at local government. I mean, you get certain... The problem is with it is that it tends to be parties, although the Conservatives did won the local elections, to be fair, for a, for a government that's mid-term and, and in the situation we are. Usually what happens is the party of opposition, Labour should have done a lot better the other week. And this is something that they're not willing to make. They should have done a lot better. But what usually happens is mid-term they'll come in and say, yep, yeah, we're back as the party of local government. Whoopee. <laughs> I'll tell you what, right, politics is exciting, but national government, right... Is crime, the economy, counter-terrorism. Local government is car parking, potholes and bins. <laughs> now, obviously, you need people to sort of deal with those issues, but it's not, it's not exciting. The most exciting thing about local government is election night, down at the poll, uh, down at the count. Now, some of you here, I'm sure, will have been to count. You'll have seen them on TV when there's a count for the local elections. In Nottingham a few years ago... I was like the designated representative of the party at the Nottingham count. So it's not like a parliamentary count where they're all counting for one seat. There's 60 different seats all being counted for. So it's absolute chaos. The party want to know what's going on. The media want to know what's going on. And what happens is, now, if you've worked in politics, you'll know this, but a lot of people think they know the opposite, which is people say, oh, yeah, if you don't put a cross in a box, it doesn't count as a vote. That actually isn't true. As long as there is a clear indication of intent in the box, out the box, next to the party name... As long as you can argue your case, that can count as a vote, right? So usually when you're a designated representative at the count, you have to file through these uh, spoil ballots and decide, rule them sort of in or out with the representatives of other parties and the returning officer. So obviously, 
I was like some cocky young buck from Nottingham, and I was just like, I'm just going to argue that all the Labour ones are in and all the other ones are out. That was, that was basically my, my tactic, and I found any ground on what to do it. So, like, for instance, if there's like a big cross through the whole ballot paper, you could say, well, they're just saying none of the above. I tried to make the case that actually, um, returning officer, the, 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 the middle of the cross does cross through the Labour box. And maybe what he was just doing was a really big vote for the Labour Party. That one didn't count. Uh, I got a smiley face, that counted. Someone did a smiley face, that got counted as a vote. Um, someone, this was the most interesting case. Someone had written the word prick next to the Labour candidate, which I tried to make the point. Well, actually, it, I mean, he was trying to make maybe a sort of point and he, he got these words mixed up and... I think, no, I'm sorry, I think that should... I don't know why I put on a middle-class voice when I was saying. I think this should really count, sire. Um, so I sort of argued that, and then it was... That was sort of hanging in the balance at about five past midnight, because people are mad. Obviously, what happens is, it's late night, people have worked all day, they've been counting votes. People just get democracy blindness, and they just get, oh, tough, just shut him up and put it in, just to sort of calm the situation down. So I'd, I was on the verge of getting the word prick counted as a Labour vote. When... <laughs> There was one in the Tory pile next to the Tory name that said twat. I was like, well, that's completely different. No, 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 no. Everyone knows a prick is better than a twat. This is, this is not... This was at the cutting edge. Of the, that is just should not be going on. In a, in a, both of them were ruled out for the, uh, for the record. <laughs> there we are. All fun and jokes. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, you've been a, a remarkable uh, crowd in the first section. We're now going to take a break, so have a glass of wine, have a beer... And I don't mind admitting uh, at this stage, this is the most excited I've been uh, to welcome a guest. Uh, I'll bring him on probably in the second half, but I'm sure we're going to have a wonderful uh, chat uh, after the break. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, I hope you enjoy the break. For the time being, I've been Matt Ford. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome back. Welcome back everyone to the second half now. Uh, Before we start... um, I'll come to the audience for questions, so if you do have a question, please raise your hand. When we go to the questions, I'll uh, ask for the lights to come up so I can see everyone. I'm always concerned that I haven't taken enough questions from the audience, so I'll try and take as many as I can tonight. Please keep them succinct so that we can get around as many people, I think. But a couple of questions in the past that have gone on a little bit. This is not a branch meeting. Uh, this is, you know, <laughs> trying to be entertainment. Uh, so, you know, nice short questions that Tim can answer. Uh, Tim is the first Conservative we've had short, down here uh, as a guest. Uh, we've had George Galloway, Nigel Farage, Charles Clark and Lembert Opic. So it's a real honour to have uh, a Conservative come down tonight and, and a, a proper politician to come down, to come down to it. Um, And Tim, Tim was a minister as well in the coalition, so he served, he served as a minister in this government, which you know, for most of us is absolutely fascinating because we've heard from people that perhaps in government a few years ago, or people have been on the back benches, but Tim has been right at the heart of government. Uh, really? Until about a year ago. <laughs> um, so, but he's an absolute legend. He, you may have seen him on Tower Block of Commons. He's a really funny bloke, and I'm uh, truly delighted that he's come along to do it tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please raise the roof and show a lot of respect to Mr Tim Lawton. <laughs> Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really bad idea, isn't it? No, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a really good idea. Okay. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm sure everyone's going to be really uh, 
constructive. Bastardish. And... <laughs> <laughs> it would. I mean, we have to start really, don't we, talking about Europe and the situation that the coalition finds itself in, and 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 particularly the Conservative Party. Would you describe yourself as a Eurosceptic? Yeah. And on one of the eight varieties, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so which which variety do you fall into? I'm a uh, EU fresh starter. Okay. Do you, know, do you know what that is? I do, yeah. And you've got guys like Stuart and Frank Field in that as well, haven't you? So it's yeah. not just it's not just Conservatives, we should say from the outset. That's well, sort of. We allow them to come on some meetings. So that's so the fresh start. I mean, it's probably best if you outline it. What what in a couple of sentences what it stands for? Okay, we starting with the serious stuff then, are we? If you like. Okay, yeah. right. <laughs> EU Fresh Start Group consists of most of uh, the backbench uh, Conservative MPs and some uh, ministers who believe we want to completely renegotiate our position in uh, Europe and that we can do that, and then we have a referendum. (laughs) 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 My wife. (laughs) (laughs) And And then we vote no. So in that referendum, would you... if, If you got this fresh start with Europe, would you vote to stay in or to pull out? Oh, well, it depends what it is. But it's got to be really radically different. Because, I mean, if you, you and me are probably just about under 55, okay? <laughs> Combined. Combined. <laughs> <laughs> if you are under 55, you've never had a vote on, on Europe. And Europe back in 75, when people did have a vote, was completely different. And I think most people probably want to get it back to the sort of thing it was back in 1975, which was based on trade and free market single market and all that sort of stuff. And then we got all this rubbish that came on top, which cost us a fortune and uh, encourages people to vote for Nigel Farage. So we want to get away from that. What do you... I mean, because what you're saying is, is quite similar to what Nigel Farage... Which no, seems not. seems quite similar. But he's a Eurosceptic as well. He wants... He doesn't think that Europe is uh, reflective of the people. He's concerned that people haven't had their say for a lot... You know, for a significant amount of time. So in some ways, you're on the same wing of Euroscepticism as he is. I mean, what, what's the difference between your wing of the Conservative Party and what you keep offering. Okay, well, the major difference is none of us have cardigans. <laughs> the second, <laughs> the, the, the That's also a dividing line in the coalition as well. I tell you, I spent... <laughs> I spent election day sitting next to UKIP um, tellers, any of you have done, done that outside the polling station. Average age, 103. <laughs> um, I was talking to... I was sitting next to this old boy for two hours who spoke... For two hours. <laughs> I had my Blackberry, I had my newspaper, two hours telling me what was wrong with the world. Then somebody came along and took over from him. He took two hours to sit down. <laughs> you got this. And when he eventually got down, he realised he'd left his thermos flask and sandwiches over there. So he then, <laughs> he then told me what was wrong with the world, and they left him this instruction sheet for how to tell. One single piece of paper, no pencil or anything like that, just an instruction sheet. He was looking at this for about 20 minutes. And he turned to me and said, um, can you explain this, how this works? And I had a look at it. And it was a printer test sheet. (laughs) 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 And the instructions were on the other side. (laughs) And they then won that seat with 50% of the vote. So, so, no, Nigel Farage and I are not on the same. <laughs> but that's, but that's in terms of that, uh, activists and things. In terms of you know, political principles, 
you can understand why he's taken, I mean, he's taken people from, from Labour and the Lib Dems as well, but it seems a bigger problem for the Conservative Party, doesn't it? I mean, are there yeah. MPs you know that are perhaps flirting with the idea of joining UKIP? Um, <laughs> do, we, do we know of anybody who's flirting with... No! no Mad, Mad Mad is a loyal Conservative. <laughs> <laughs> she was born a loyal Conservative. She will die sooner or later. <laughs> loyal Conservative. <laughs> so no, don't believe everything you read in there. There just there seems to be, you know, obviously this, the local elections have fuelled this. David Cameron's pledge on a referendum has fuelled it. I mean, what do you make of his pledge on a referendum in four years' time? Does that, does that seem as cowardly to you as it does to other people? No. The... the uh, no. Look, <laughs> look, the problem is, I mean, most of us, I think, want to be part of a different sort of Europe, a Europe that actually most people in this country feel comfortable with, which most people in this country haven't for many uh, years, and one that works for us. And all this bureaucracy rubbish and all the bureaucrats and uh, all the costs and all the rules, we get rid of all that. And we get back to those things that are in the interests of us and in the interests of other uh, European um, partners. If we can do that, then that's got to be a good thing. And let's have a proper referendum, because we need a referendum, because we need to lance this ball and settle it once and for all. But if we just have a referendum now, do we want to stay in Europe as it is now? I probably, most people probably will say no. If it's a different sort of Europe, yes. But we need to get to that different sort of Europe, so we need to have a proper negotiation. The trouble is nobody believes that we're serious about negotiation or that our other partners are serious about negotiation. We've actually been spending quite a lot of time speaking to politicians from around Europe. We're going to Prague, we're going to Warsaw with the Fresh Start Group uh, next week. And when we tell them the sort of thing that we want, actually they say, well, yeah, actually we can see the, the merit in, in that. That's got, that's got legs. So I think it's doable. But if it isn't doable and they say, bugger off, you know, you're not having that, then fine, we're having a referendum. And I think most people will then vote no, but we've given it... We've given it a go. And the problem is, what people don't really realise, and what most people, UKIP, don't realise, is if we come out or not, there's still going to be a European Union, mm. and we will still have to deal with it. Um, I mean, many UKIP members may not be alive if we come out then, so it's not their problem. <laughs> but for most of us, coming out of Europe doesn't mean Europe then doesn't exist. So we've got to deal with it. We've got to be realistic about it. But that's, that's the issue, isn't it, for people? And I think public opinion, even since January... Has, has switched from pro to anti and back again. If you look at the polling, people just... The, most of the public is, is deeply confused. And I think you're right about people aren't necessarily happy with the European Union as it is, but what is also true is there's a deep anxiety about the unknown of if we pull out, mm. does that then mean British companies will face tariffs on the Eurozone? Will that be bad for British business? And I think people are sort of negative about the, the bureaucracy of Europe. I think that's true. Even pro-Europeans should be honest about the fact that the Parliament clearly doesn't have a democratic mandate. And I think... I would count myself as a pro-European and think that the biggest failure of the pro-European cause hasn't to be honest about its failings, and it's allowed UKIP and um, no, the Eurosceptics to own the argument. But there is still a great fear, isn't there, that if we pull out of Europe, we are then isolated. And some people say towards the end of the, the major years, we felt isolated in Europe. It was Tony Blair that took us close, and that was seen at the time as a good thing, to be, to be part of Europe, to be influencing it. If we're out of it, we have no say on, on what governs that massive yeah, economic... and there's a, there's a lot of false rumours going around. I mean, Norway, fantastic. Let's all be like Norway. They're outside of the, uh, the EU. Fantastically wealthy economy. That's because they own loads and loads of oil and they only have a population of 5 million. They pay two-thirds per head, the equivalent, into the EU to be an associate member, effectively, as we do over here. So if you want a relationship with the Europe, you can't have it for, for free. 
And actually, I mean, there are companies in my constituency, smaller companies, saying, well, hold on, if we come out of Europe, then we're going to start having to pay tariffs on our widgets. So actually, that's going to have a real knock-on effect for the people we employ um, locally. So there are repercussions. It's not, as Nigel says, well, it's easy. We'll come out of Europe. We'll send all the foreigners uh, home. We'll bank all the money we don't have to, to pay. We're quids in sorted. It's not as easy as that. That's the problem. But for those British businesses... No, that no it isn't as easy. <laughs> <laughs> but for those well said. They're not with me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to the audience in a bit. But if I thought we were going to talk about Michael Fabricant. Anyway, what's, what's gone wrong there? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I like Michael Fabricant. He was on telly the other night, wasn't he? Yeah, he, was, he was, yeah. Is he, is he a, a, are you a pal of his? We're all fans of Michael Fabricant. <laughs> Probably a bad idea to take an extra wig on to have I got the <laughs> Is it definitely a wig? No, it's not a wig, no. Uh, his hairdresser lives in my constituency, so I know exactly what it is. But I can't tell him. <laughs> but it's more complicated than just a wig. <laughs> Is it one of those, like... Um, I'm not telling you, no, but it's really complicated. Is that that episode of Only Fools and Horses where Rodney had that ponytail? <laughs> <laughs> He's never done a ponytail, but he does have seasonal adjustments. <laughs> it sounds like does this... your hair but go blonde in the sun? You know, that's the sort of thing he, he comes up with. So he has, he has numerous different ones to make it look like his hair's grown. Sort of, yeah. Wow! We should talk, we should, have we should, him on the show. He'd love I'd to love to. Do you he was he'd such do it? a success on how I got news. To you. I'm sure he'd love to come. <laughs> but he's 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 on that wing of the party that he's making a lot of positive noises towards UKIP at the moment, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, yeah. He's, he was <laughs> he was one of the MPs that said they should be talking about an electoral pact. Okay. We were pissed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would you? What if David Cameron said, "Look, we need an electoral pact with UKIP to, to head them off at the next general election"? Would that be something you'd support? No, it's bonkers. <laughs> Why, look, we don't want an electoral pact with anybody. They are another party. UKIP aren't just sort of you know, conservatives with cardigans. They are another party who believe in some things that conservatives believe in, but believe in a whole load of other stuff, which I wouldn't go near with a, with a barge pole. We must fight them at the next election, the same way as we're going to fight the Liberals, we're going to fight Labour and, and everybody else. So let's stop treating them as sort of uh, cousins. <laughs> so... Uh, what is the mood like on the back benches at the moment? Fantastic, isn't it, team? Yeah. <laughs> I think we've got a few Conservative it's MPs in tonight. It's never been so good. But it must be, it must be quite difficult to be... Oh, the Deputy Prime Minister was fantastic at Prime Minister's Question Time. Really fantastic. Were you in there today? Uh, I was in there. Several people in the back row had leaflets, which they uh, traded. You've got one of those leaflets that's come into your possession. Isn't it? It was fantastic. But it, because in the past, you've, you've been... Chastised for your behaviour in the Commons by. No, by it was a misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a microphone malfunction and the speaker thought it was me and it wasn't. If you haven't seen the clip, it's on, <laughs> it's on YouTube. If all you see no, is Burko. It's not on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> John Burko sort of screaming, order, order, order. And then it was, I think it was when you were the children's minister at the time. Yeah. And he says, that, you know, I say to the children's minister, words to the effect of, you, you know, your behaviour falls below the standards expected. And then it keeps going on. And all, I, all you hear John Burko say is, no, it's not funny, Mr Lawton. Only in your mind is it funny. <laughs> which I just love the idea that you're heckling, which I love about Parliament. And then you, I just love the idea of you sitting there going, it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's really... I became a, such a massive fan of you after watching that. I thought, good for you. Because I like the comments when it's rowdy. Do you prefer it when it's rowdy? Of course you do, but Burko says... I've got members of the public writing to me saying they don't like this noise. 
So somebody put in a freedom of information request to find out exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And since Burkay became the speaker four years ago, the total number was 13, I think. (laughs) So why is it that the thing people really want to come and see, which is always a sellout in the public gallery, all constituents always say, oh, can we come and see, is Prime Minister's question time. So if it so switches off the public, why is it that everybody wants to see Prime Minister's question time? Okay, it's not... You know, it's all a bit of pantomime. It's good knockabout stuff, but it's entertaining. It's not where the serious business is, uh, uh, is done. And I'm afraid the more Burko, who's now my new best bestie, <laughs> the the thing about the thing about Burko is he tries to claim that you know people don't want to see that, and they do. Yeah. So we sit. There's there's a group of us called the Rough Trade, and we've always sat, we've always sat right up in the corner, square with the speaker's chair. And we started doing this when Michael Martin was the uh, was the speaker. So we could make loads of noise, and Michael Martin, nice man, but you know he's not going to win Mastermind, couldn't quite, <laughs> couldn't quite work out where the heckling was coming from. So we always got, we always got away with it. You know. <laughs> always got away with it. And then Burko comes along, he's a bit smarter, and works out where the noise is coming from. So we, the rough trade has been named. However, we turned it to our, we turned it to our advantage because we came up with this um, triple B medal. And if you get a Triple B um, medal, it's a great accolade. And Triple B stands for bollocked by Burke. <laughs> so, on the day where the speaker said that the Minister for Children need not feel it incumbent to behave like a child, <laughs> I got a double Triple B. <laughs> and we kept a league table, and I went to straight to the top of the league, and it was in the Sunday Times. Fantastic. He was so pissed off. So I then sent him a bottle of vodka, asking him to sign it so I could then auction it to my constituents. And it was the most wayward signature <laughs> bottle that came, that came up. But now we are besties. And so his wife. So <laughs> <laughs> So who else is in rough trade? Who are the other MPs? Well, there's a few of them at the back at the moment over there. Um, there is Colonel Keith Simpson, the member uh, for Mid-Norfolk, uh, who was also um, named. Simon Burns, the mean Minister for Railways, um, who was named. Uh, Anna Subri, the Health Gedling. Minister. Gedling, one of your yeah, local. She was, uh, she was named. Um, so there's a, there's a regular well, group. It's Brockstone, isn't it, Anna Subri? Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's the, she no. won it in the last election. Um, it's a good choice, Proxter. So there's, there's quite a few of you. Who came up with the name Rough Trade? <laughs> it was Colonel Simpson, I think. <laughs> Colonel yeah. Simpson. So but it's good exercise, and it's what the Commons is all, uh, is all about. I love it. I mean, I don't know how people, p- people feel here. Do people prefer it when it's rowdy in the Commons? Yeah. I think it was well, pretty half-hearted, wasn't it? Who doesn't prefer it when it's rowdy in the Commons? Okay, it's a deal. Right? <laughs> All right to Burko and tell him you prefer it when it's right. <laughs> and we will then put in a freedom of information request to find how many of you have done this. <laughs> and we will win the vote. So when, when Bramson's question time used to be at 3 o'clock, they moved it from 3 to 12 and the, the argument was that it was to make the comments more family friendly and all that sort of thing. A lot of people said it was because MPs were drinking from 12 until 3 <laughs> on match day. And... <laughs> And they had to sort of cut that out. I mean, was, do you remember the Prime Minister's question time at three o'clock? And was it, was it a sort of boozier, rowdier place? 
Well, I don't know, because when we got in, it had been changed. It was Tony Blair, I think, changed it to make it once a week. That's right. So it had been twice a week for half an hour. For, for a quarter of an hour, actually. That's right. This is, this is two and four. And then um, Blair changed it to once a week, half an hour. Uh, on a Wednesday at mid, um, mid It was three for a while under Blair, wasn't it? And then it, and then it moved to midday. I think it changed quite, quite, quite quickly after that. So, no, I think it was always... No, no, Thank you very much, team. Very good. It was a couple of years after he came in that he moved it to midday. Well, well who cares? Okay, well, no, 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 well, it's just I'm, I'm just trying to sort of paint a picture of, of, of it as a sort of rowdier place. Was it a sort of more enjoyable place at three o'clock? No, we weren't there. They never changed it. I'm not I'm move on, move I'm on. Nothing to see here. Let's go back to Michael Fabrican. I'm just amazed that we had questions on Europe that were fine. <laughs> <laughs> questions about it's 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock. And, you know, I mean, of course, there's, there's is yet it? another split in the Tory party. <laughs> the 12 o'clockers, the 3 o'clockers. Um, What's Alan Partridge got to say about it anyway over here? Oh, Alan, Alan's just enjoyed himself. Right? Um, so the mood in the, at the moment, you would say, the, the mood in the, in the Conservative Party in general, is it broadly supportive of David Cameron? That never better. It's a 100% loyal party. And now, with Nadine making up that 100%, it's, it's never been better, hasn't it, team? Fantastic. We are cruising effortlessly to victory at the next election. Under... <laughs> Under David Cameron as our leader, I mean, as, possibly as, president, <laughs> and it's going to be fine. As a Blairite, <laughs> as a Blairite, Tim, I hope you are, um, because I, I worry about Ed Miliband as a prime minister. I mean, you know, some people we, have. We, we wonder. We worry about Ed Miliband as a human being. I was, I was going to ask, I mean, because sometimes there's mutual respect across the Commons, isn't there? I mean, are there any Labour MPs that you get on with that you like? They're fantastic Labour MPs, yeah. Particularly those who hate Liberals. This is great, <laughs> great alliance. This is great alliance. I mean, I'm great mates with David Blunkett. I first stood for a Parliament in 1992 in the People's Republic of Sheffield, Brightside, against David. And uh, due to two things, the fact that his dog fell ill partway through the uh, election, and so there were daily reports on the front page of the Sheffield Star, BBC, ITV, the Daily Telegraph, about how this bloody dog was, including, <laughs> including David Blunkett rang up his dog, he was in a vet surgery in Bristol, where he'd fallen ill, and had the operation, and offered the dog, wagged his tail in recognition. <laughs> so wherever he went in bloody Sheffield, there were little old ladies saying, oh, have you heard about David's dog? It's so, so on the day I lost by 22,500 votes. <laughs> <laughs> Down from 24,000 votes. A combination... A combination of the dog and the weather on polling day. But the great thing about David Blunkett is I arrived in Sheffield when I got selected by the huge ranks of the Tory party membership of Sheffield Brightside, all 16 of them. And they made it quite clear at the uh, beginning of the election selection that the last thing they wanted was some softy southern banker. <laughs> so they selected me uh, from the south and uh, a former banker. And I... Uh, David Blunkett asked to see me, and he said, now that we um, don't like these Liberals around here, and there's this great unholy alliance between the tourism and Labour in Sheffield. So um, David Blunkett, and this is between you and me, did, did us a favour. <laughs> and David Blunkett's people were delivering my leaflets around, around Sheffield Brightside on the basis we would keep the bastard Liberal, who had appeared in an episode of Doctor Who, was his only claim to fame, as Uncle Zillon, in order to keep him in third place. 
we had, this, we had this great alliance. And whenever we did these hustings, all three of us, we were just going up on this liberal. <laughs> <laughs> this, this liberal who didn't come from Shepherd, he was so stupid, I found him canvassing in their speaker car in the next door constituency. <laughs> I had, um, I, my campaign car was an ice cream van. It was the best sort of campaign car. This local ice cream company owned by a Tory said, we can have one of our ice cream vans for the, for the election. So I went round in my um, campaign ice cream van going... <laughs> all the kids come running out and going, Vote Conservative! All these kids... So we go up, we go up behind this... <laughs> we would go up behind this Lib Dem campaign car and, you know, this is your Liberal Democrat candidate saying, vote for me, to vote for giving up all our powers for Europe and all this sort of stuff. And of course the Liberals didn't have a speaker that worked on their, on their cast. We just hounded him for the, entire, for the entire campaign, which was really satisfying. So when I then got selected for my slightly more winnable seat in Sussex in 1997, I went up to the Labour candidate and said, look, I'd like to repay the favour. <laughs> if you would like us to um, deliver some of your leaflets, so that you might do better than a Liberal candidate, then I'd be delighted to do that. Didn't trust me. He thought I was a double-dealing, double never took it up. But, you know, so I get on with David Blunkett, great mates. <laughs> Fine fellow, hates Liberals, the bastard. <laughs> it's, it's respect to the one Liberal person in the House this evening. <laughs> Not a lot of respect, but... Um. That, was, that was always my experience of campaigning, this is long before the coalition, anywhere, was that when you got to a by-election or local elections... There's sort of a certain amount of mutual respect between the Tories and the Labour Party, and a, a, just a genuine disdain for the Liberal Democrats, which is something that I think a, a lot of the people out there in the country didn't, didn't realise, that there was that genuine sort of antipathy towards them amongst Labour and uh, Conservative people. So when you're in a coalition with them then, I mean, th because there must be people you've campaigned against when you've gone on by-elections and things like that. I mean, they know how Conservative and Labour people feel about them, and you know how you feel about them. I mean... Is there a lot of good-natured banter between the two? Or, I mean no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm doing this, OK? The, um, there is lots of good-natured banter between us and, and Labour MPs. You go on trips, you know, they're friends, you go to the, go to the bar, have a drink, fine. Liberal Democrats, they, they don't do social. There are, lots of, there are lots of clubs and teams in the House of Commons. There's a House of Commons... I'm captain of the House of Commons hockey team. Traditional, we never win. And there's a House of Commons tennis team, there's House Commons skiing team, all sort of thing. No Liberals belong or participate in any of those teams. The only Liberal Democrat MP who has ever been spotted turning out for a sporting fixture for the House of Commons is Chris Hoon on a ski slope. And look where that went. <laughs> they are not very clubbable people. Why do you think that is? Well, they're tossers. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> they are... Because they produce leaflets like the one that you produced uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. earlier and then try and get away with it. I mean, our, our beloved deputy um, leader uh, today tried to make out that he hadn't said what he'd put on the leaflet, with or without the small print. You know, people see through that and then vote for Nigel Farage. <laughs> but they're lovely people otherwise. Lovely but it's worth, it is worth, you make a good point now. I think a lot of people don't realise this, is that the public, sort of before the election, saw the Liberal Democrats as 
sort of nicer, just nicer people than, than Labour and Conservative people, that they were somehow cared more for people, that they were genuinely more benevolent. And anyone who's campaigned against them, and of course, the Conservative Party uses dirty tricks in by-elections, as does the Labour Party. You know, every uh, party whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Evidence? You just said you hounded the Liberal Democrat and Pete. He wanted to pull you out of Europe and he didn't have a backup phone. Why is that a dirty trick? <laughs> I've just got a bigger megaphone than you. Sort of <laughs> Should have taken the precaution of getting a proper megaphone at the beginning of the election campaign. Really? Dirty trick. <laughs> But there's, oh, there's, my idea of a dirty trick. But there's the sort of usual rough and tumble on a by-election, isn't there? You know, no, no, when I worked at the Labour Party, there's certainly bits and pieces go on. You know, there's always a bit of mischief. Well, none of us ch- dress up as chickens. There's <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that, you know, a bit of fun and games. And none of us have ever dressed up as chickens or any other form of wildlife at all. Well, ever. I can't be the only person who's ever rented a chicken suit. Anyone else? All right, not... <laughs> Chicken, lizard, snake, anyone? <laughs> don't no, you are unique, Matt. You are. Cheers, mate. But people don't, people don't realise, do they, that the Liberal Democrats in by-election campaigns are ruthless. And they, I, yeah. as far as I'm aware, I, th- I genuinely think they push it more than other parties, particularly when it comes to the truth and campaigning. Yeah, they do. They do. They're right down to delivering one sort of leaflet in one street and a completely different sort of leaflet in a, another street, you know. We wouldn't do that, nor would your party. It's <laughs> just about my party at the moment. I'm on the verge. Um, but... Oh, no, no, no. I'll stay in the Labour Party. Who was it, Nigel or George, that got you? (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm just... It was... Which way are you swinging, Nigel or George? Oh, no, no, God, no, no, no. Um, No, not Labour. Not Labour, no, no. The Zillon Party. I'm a a Blairite, so I just am troubled by the direction of the the Labour Party at the moment. As are lots of people, I think. But... One Liberal Democrat MP I wanted to ask you about, in, in, in terms of the tone of the comments, is Julian Huppert. Because Muppet. <laughs> every time he gets to his feet in the Commons, yeah. I don't know if you've seen this, but oh. a lot of MPs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the noise that people make. And John Burkow says, When I call the good doctor, as he calls him, I don't want to hear this collective groan. And it, he gets groaned at. Like, he, it's one thing to be booed at, but to be groaned at just so why did why exactly why did Burko do that? Because if the House of Commons does a collective groan, there is no phrase in Hansard for collective groan. So it goes unnoticed. So Burko gets up and says, I don't want to hear a collective groan. Now he's in Hansard. So now everybody knows, those people, many millions of them who read Hansard on a daily basis, know that when Julian Muppet got up, everyone went, Ugh, like that, which they wouldn't have otherwise. So Burko a bright spark. You know, Burkett. Doesn't do it for nothing. I quite like him. I think he adds yeah, to the pantomime him, yeah. of it. Yeah. But he's made the commons... Do you think he's helped make it more raucous place? No, I do think... Well, actually, let's, let's just sort of take Burko away from the, from, from the man. What Burko has done in the House of Commons, I think he's done some really good things. Actually, the, the backbenchers have a greater uh, role. Um, he gives much more time to backbenchers rather than um, government uh, ministers. He has hauled government ministers for things called urgent questions on a much more regular mm. um, basis. And in many cases, that is right. In some cases, I think there's a little bit of mischief for um, making some old scores to, uh, uh, to settle. But actually, I think he has strengthened the, uh, the, the backbench role of the, uh, of, of the chamber and, uh, and, and made it more of a melting pot, which is, which is good. Um, it's a few personality traits about John Burke have got him into a bit of trouble. And the fact that there's an awful lot more in Hansard said by the speaker now than ever before. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And it's not just order, order, and then calling individuals. There's a sort of a few soliloquies in between uh, as well, which is, OK, that's, that's fine. But no, he's done quite a good job. How did you find him? <laughs> <laughs> You're getting all this down. The wits, uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. How did you find dealing with him as a minister then when you were at the dispatch box? Did you find him more infuriating from that point of view? Well, when I was at the dispatch box, it was mostly with Michael Gove on the uh, same bench as me, and he hates Michael Gove more than he hated me. <laughs> so it was all relative. And, you, and you're, you were an education minister under Michael Gove, and then you were moved in the reshuffle. And it was interesting when you were moved because... I think I, I was uh, sacked in the reshuffle. Moved, I was <laughs> moved from moved the away. bench to the back bench. Yeah. I, was, I was trying to be um, charitable, but... Uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> I think what was interesting about, about the fact that you were fired was... Well, I didn't say fired. <laughs> no, that's harsh. That's harsh. Was the fact that actually there was cross-party reaction that on the select committee, and I know there were Labour MPs uh, at the time, actually thought you'd done a, quite a good job and you, you'd been able to command cross-party support, which is quite rare sometimes, isn't it, for a minister so early in their ministerial career that there was a genuine sense, I think, from the select committee that you shouldn't have been moved. How did you feel? And how, how were you told that you were going to be you know, sacked in the reshuffle? Do you really want to hear this? Yeah. Okay. Well, reshuffles are a very strange beast, and I've never done one before because we hadn't been in, um, in government before. So um, you don't get told in advance, you know, there's going to be a reshuffle tomorrow, so I suggest you stand by your, your phone between a certain hour or, or whatever. So it all happened on Tuesday morning. I came into work um, as uh, usual. I had a whole full day of, um, of meeting, so I was sort of getting on with those. And then it became clear that actually a reshuffle was happening. And I learned that from Twitter and Sky TV on my, uh, in my office. So, oh, it's a reshuffle game. I suppose I stand by my phone. And um, just to preface that, when, I, when you get appointed as a minister, it was a slightly odd situation for me as well, because we've all been hanging around for days while the coalition agreement was going on. Then the deal was done, and then all the appointments were starting made. All the cabinet ministers were done in the morning. And then you go into the House Commons Tea Room, and there were lots of Conservative frontbenchers who had an expectation to be made a minister, mm. looking very, very nervous. There were one or two of them here in the audience this evening. And um, <laughs> who, who had their blackberries on the table in front of them. And, and one in particular, I won't name him, quite, see quite close to me, who every literally three or four minutes kept picking up his blackberry, so shaking it, just to check it was still on and getting a, getting a signal. And so there were all these very nervous people in the tea room, and I was quite sort of laid back about this. I thought, well, you know, what the hell, I'll go back to my, um, my office. And nothing happened. got about four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, I said, right, I need, I'm going off to the loo now, but just to take a precaution, I'll take my Blackberry to the loo with me. So anyway, I was in the loo. And I was sitting there, and uh, then my... That's answered um, that question. And then my, uh, my Blackberry went off. Picked up. Uh, hello. Uh, so number number ten switchboard here. Will you stand by for a call from the prime minister? So I oh, right. So I very quickly. <laughs> I number ten and number two. Stand up when this is. Uh, <laughs> so I it, uh, and in doing so, I cut off the uh, the phone from the. <laughs> <laughs> so there I am with my. Uh, with my blackberry. Oh dear, that's probably not a very good move, is it? So I thought they'll ring back. They'll ring back. I've been there. No, they'll ring back. Five minutes, ten minutes, <laughs> fifteen minutes. Finish the strong crossword. No, I thought we'll solve that again as soldiers. Went back to my office. One hour, hour and a half, two hours later, Blackberry eventually rings. Uh, number ten switch here. Are you ready now for a call from the uh, prime minister? <laughs> and so I got appointed in slightly unconventional fashion. Anyway, 
how you get sacked. Right, so you're in your office. <laughs> it's all happening on the telly. So, uh, in so the that was when you were appointed? That was when I was appointed, okay. yes. Uh, two, uh, two years, four months, and how many days, and a few hours. Four <laughs> and, and then, um, so it's all happening, and you hear nothing. You look at Blackberry, you haven't got any messages to go into the Prime Minister, anything like that. People are being filmed going up Downing Street, or what have you got, all this sort of stuff. So, um, on the Department of Education, all the ministers sit on the seventh floor. There's, uh, there's the, the, the King, Michael Gove, and there's, <laughs> there's Nick Gibb, Sarah Tether, uh, Liberal Democrat Coalition um, uh, partner, and uh, Jonathan Hill and myself. So I thought, I'll go, to, um, I'll go have a word with Nick Gibb, see if he'd heard anything. Went across the other side of the uh, department to Nick Gibb's office, uh, whereupon there were a, a couple of um, men in sort of brown overalls with crepes. <laughs> and Nick Gibb's name on the door appeared to have been removed, <laughs> as indeed had Nick Gibb uh, <laughs> about an hour earlier. And literally, within 60 minutes, those men from the maintenance department that you've been nagging to come up and fix a picture on your wall for the last two years appear as a rapid reaction force <laughs> with their crates to hack any trace of the now ex-ministerial presence into heavy-duty plastic crates, and you are an ex-minister. So I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> and I scurried back to my office very quickly, shut the door, locked it, double bolted it. <laughs> Wiped the hard drive. <laughs> Put a new battery in the shredder. <laughs> and um, then it got to about lunchtime, nothing... Still nothing happening. What's going on here? So I, I'll go and see if Sarah Tether knows anything about it. <laughs> Sarah Tether, these two men in those brown coats again with the crates. So he's getting closer because her office is just across from, uh, from me. So head, uh, head back. So it gets to about, um, it's about three o'clock and nothing's sort of happening. And then I get a call from, uh, from, from Downing Street and saying that the Prime Minister would like to see you at 3.30, whatever it is. And um, he'd like to see you in his office in the House of Commons. Now, by that time, what had become clear by Twitter, all these things going around saying, have you heard about such and such? God, he's just been fired. What do you believe? But if you're going to get promoted, then you get invited to go and see the Prime Minister in Downing Street in front of all the cameras. Uh, if you're going to get defenestrated, then you get invited round the back of the House of Commons to his office um, there, away from the cameras. So that's not a good sign, I think. <laughs> so I bounced over to the, uh, to the House of Commons <laughs> and met one of my um, uh, colleagues who had just had the routine from the Prime Minister, who basically gave me the script. And so, anyway, I went to the Prime Minister's office, and there were all these flunkies from... Number 10 down the street. Whenever you go to a meeting number 10 down the street, you know, they couldn't give you the time of day, you know. All of a sudden, they're told, oh, Minister, do come in. Yes, we have lovely plump cushions for you here. Can sit here. All this. And then the Prime Minister bounces out of his office, you know, comes and greets you. Oh, Tim, come in. You know, sort of thing. So you know it's curtains. And so, or in this case, soft furnishings and plump cushions. Because while you are, you are, you're then made to sit in this big sofa, with all these big cushions. So whilst you're still doing all this, <laughs> basically you're told you've done a fantastic job, fuck off your fire. <laughs> so it is, it is death by soft furnishings. It's the hard reality of the reshuffle. So you then go out of the door, 
your entire ministerial career behind you. You go back to your now ex-office, <laughs> jostling the space by the two men in brown coats who are already there at the... <laughs> You're really governor, you know. And um, you, um, sort of my case, I opened two bottles of champagne for my private office and a few others. We had a, uh, a drink. And I left with a large Bertie Bassett jelly baby jar, which I had in my <laughs> office under my arm. And <laughs> the former parliamentary undersecretary of state for children and families has left the building. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> But they don't have no jelly babies anymore. So oh, thank know. you very much. Cheers. Do you, um, so that's how it happens. When, when you... When you should be good. made a sitcom out of that. It must be hard not to take it personally, because obviously in politics um, you go in it out of a significant sense of public service, but also a certain amount of personal ambition, and you, you know, you're an opinionated person, you have what you think are sort of visions and get on the ministerial ladder, you feel perhaps maybe one day you'll be a Secretary of State, maybe perhaps you might dream privately of leading the party or leading the country or whatever, and then that comes to what feels like quite an abrupt stop. I mean, how do you take that as a person? Does your sort of heart race? Do you feel a bit sick, or do you feel a sense of calm? You feel really pissed off. To be fair, there are people who are ministers whose ambition is only ever to be a minister and to get up that greasy pearl because they want to be a minister and that is the be-all and end-all. And that's fine, that's what some people go into politics for. There are some of us, not like that at all, who actually, and to give him his due, one thing that David Cameron did really well, was a smart move, was to put people who've been shadow ministers in their positions. And I've been the shadow children's minister effectively since 2001, done that brief for a long time and so you know, should by 2010 really have known my way around the job, met a lot of people, built up good report, lots of people in that, uh, in that sector. So I was made Minister for Children. Nick Gibbon, my um, department, fellow West Sussex MP, had been schools minister since 2005, well, as shadow schools minister, was made schools minister. Now, that was a real advantage. It meant that when we became ministers, first of all, we had to learn how to be ministers, but we didn't have to learn our briefs. And so we were able to hit the ground running. So Michael Gove had been Shadow Secretary of State, Nick Gibby had been uh, Shadow Schools Minister, me as Children's Minister. We knew what we wanted to do. We had a programme, we had our agenda, we were able to give it to the civil servants and you know, rather than tell us what they thought we should be doing, we told them what they were going to do and this is how you're going to get on with it. And that was a real um, advantage. But for some of us, um, we were doing it because actually we wanted, we had a real belief in what we were doing and I didn't necessarily want to be I want to be left to get on with what I was doing, which was a big reform programme about the way we look after children in care, reforming the adoption um, uh, system, child protection, and we, you know, yesterday's news about these horrendous um, child sexual exploitation um, cases. That was the fact that we are now dealing with them better. The fact that they have now come to court, which they never used to, is because of things that we put in place, frankly, uh, 18 months, two years um, ago. So lots of things and I think we've done that are good for children, that was part of my programme, and so you feel an ownership, you feel an affinity to it. And the trouble is, if you then um, are no longer your spokesman for the party on, on doing that, then what do you do? You, for something like me, I'm not going to drop my interest in children and become an expert in fish or the Balkans or something like that, <laughs> because children are a real issue and a, and a passion. And there are many politicians who take a real interest in their subject and want to do it because they want to bring change and improvement for the be it children, be it old people, be it agriculture, whatever it, uh, it may be. So that's really frustrating because you feel that for 
whatever reasons, and you know, I'm sure the Prime Minister was absolutely right to say thank you very much, fuck off. But, <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a bummer, isn't it, really? And, well, how does it affect... say that, actually. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> how does it affect your personal relationship with him? Because, obviously... Well, that's if you have a personal relationship. <laughs> <laughs> was it, did you have much to do with him when you were a minister? Would he, would he talk to you about your work? A bit, but I think one criticism, and it's criticism that I've made, and I think is fair game, and it's not just uh, David Cameron. N- number 10 is a bit of a hermetically sealed um, unit, and I think there's a real problem of communication between number 10 and departments and ministers, and partic- particularly ministers in the, uh, in the junior ranks. And quite often you'd find that number 10 had launched some initiative, and the first you'd know about it was to read it on the front page of the Sunday papers or something like that. And that's not a good way to run, to run government. And if something goes wrong, something kicks off in your subject, then I think the first thing you should do is to ring up the minister responsible and say, OK, what's the story? How should we be reacting to, um, uh, to this? So still, I'm afraid, government off, um, operates in silos too much, and we should operate as a team. And one thing I found, I mean, this whole business about joined-up government, there's never been such a, uh, a misphrase as joined-up government. Um, whereas before, if you wanted to discuss an issue with another front venture, you would just ring them up go see them in the lobby, say, look, we need to sort out our policy mm-hmm. on youth justice, which involves, you know, children's department, involves the um, Minister of Justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you become a minister, uh, you need to book that five-minute conversation about seven months in advance. And you have this huge private office of people whose job is solely to fill up your diary with things you don't need to do and to prevent you from doing things that you probably should be doing. And there were certain items of policy which involved me and several other departments. And literally, the way we would get it done is I would invite four or five other ministers to have dinner um, without any civil servants there. We'd get around the table and say, look, we need to do this. We'd all agree it. The following day, we'd go back to our departments and say, this is our policy, now please do it. And all the civil servants said, well, minister, I'm sure you want to do that. We don't do it like that. That often was the only way of doing it. And there's just not enough interaction between different ministries, different departments... Uh, and with number 10 as, uh, as well. And it's not just a thing about this government, it's a thing about all governments, yeah. I think it's a weakness. In terms of David Cameron as a leader and as, as a chief exec of the, of the coalition of the government, do you get a sense from him, I mean, obviously, you know, number 10 would meddle or whatever, but do you get a sense that David Cameron has a, a, a vision for the country, that he's, he's putting his full energy into, into delivering that? Oh, yeah, I know. What, whatever you think about David Cameron's... Uh, views or the way he's, uh, he's run things. He is absolutely adrenaline-fired. He's absolutely um, committed to what he is, uh, he's, he's, he's doing. You only have to look at the number of grey hairs in the ball patch he's now developing since being Prime Minister to, to bear testimony to, um, uh, to that. So I think uh, Dave Cameron is Prime Minister material, whatever you think of his views and what mm. he's actually, actually done. I think there's a question mark over, is Ed, Ed Miliband Prime Minister um, material, but but David Cameron is a, a credible prime minister on the yeah. world uh, on the world scene, and a prime minister at the hardest time probably any prime minister has had for many many years, working without a majority that hasn't happened for a long long time, mm. forming a proper coalition for the first time since the uh, since the war, and with the economy on the ropes as it uh, <coughs> as it is, all that to cope with before we then get on with the day to day job of of running the government. In terms of the economy, that's a major issue for people, isn't it? And obviously, the recent growth figures of 0.3% don't instill a great deal of confidence. And there's a sense that, I think, when the coalition first came in, the public were full square behind the idea that the deficit needed to bring down, be brought down, that difficult decisions needed to be made, that there was going to be a bit of pain, but it would be worth it in the sort of medium to long term. We're three years in now, and the sense 
seems to have changed a bit that people are saying, well, this is hurting a great deal and we don't see a great deal of growth. I mean, do you think George Osborne's on the right track or do you think he should change? No, there is, alas, there is no other option. But it was inevitable that the longer the pain went on, and I think most people underestimated how long it would, mm. uh, it would take, then the more impatient people um, become. But, I mean, if you think the state we are in in this country compared to other European um, countries... You know, we've got un- unemployment, which is high enough in this country, but, I mean, it- Italy, unemployment's gone up by 650,000 in the last year. In Spain, youth unemployment is over 50%. I mean, that is rioting, revolutionary, um, festering um, stuff. We are in a better state than, than that, but people are impatient. And people's reaction to that has been not to fortunately elect sort of neo-Nazis in Germany or complete Canadians in Italy, we've got a comedian in Nigel Farage as the, as the antidote <laughs> to it um, over here, but more seriousness to it. You know, Nigel Farage needs to be taken seriously, which is why it was absolutely wrong, and some of us have been taken for a long time, to refer to the followers of that party as fruitcakes and loonies um, or, or clowns. It's completely the wrong approach to take. What do you make um, of this idea, and this is a, a story that was lent more weight last week, that David Cameron is surrounding himself by old Etonians and public school types, uh, that uh, he had a member of staff who was a black advisor who said that he, he, didn't, he wasn't made to feel comfortable in number 10, that there's a sense that there's a public school clique running the country. I actually think that's deeply unfair, and I don't think people's backgrounds should be used against them. It's what you do when you're in office that matters. Nevertheless, there is a perception there, isn't there? Yeah. Do you no, think it's fair? No, there, there's a perception, and it's the perception that is damaging, whether or not it's true. And I did, you know, I went to an entirely state school... Um, educated. There were some really good ministers who were entirely state school um, educated. There were some very good ministers who happened to go to um, Eton. So what? Mm. All I can say about it is, are they the right person to be doing that uh, that job? Uh, and do they know the uh, do they know the ropes? Um, the trouble is, there has been a slightly disproportionate emphasis on people who went to one particular um, school, and that has become the issue. And in particular, it's these are backroom people. These are advisors in many cases. And it's often very dangerous when the advisors, the backroom people, become the front-page story, then mm-hmm. that, is, that is trouble, and that's when it becomes a, an issue. So it's a perception thing. I, I have no doubt that those people are really good at um, the job they've been brought in for, and that should be the consideration on which we judge them. Absolutely right. Uh, OK, let's bring the house lights up, and if people would like to uh, ask a question, we've got time to... OK, just hold on a second. Just hold on. OK, let's... Hold on a second. Whereabouts are you? Can you raise your hand? Oh, yes. Yes. And Sorry, I'm going to have to ask your name and I'll repeat it for the podcast. So what's your name, madam? Angela Harvey. Angela Harvey. And what's your question, please? What are the best things and worst things that you've done in politics? What are the best and worst things you've done in politics? This is your life now, isn't it? Well, I think the best thing, okay, as a minister, the thing I am most proud of is the, uh, and okay, it might sound very technical, the Child Sexual Exploitation Action Plan, which we brought out 18 months um, ago, the result of which is more people know about child sexual exploitation and more cases like the one that headlined yesterday are actually coming to court. Been going on for years and years and years, never made it to court. Now more people are aware of it and the perpetrators doing these horrible, horrible things are actually um, uh, now getting justice thrown at them. So I think that's one of the best things I've done in uh, politics. One of the worst things probably is coming on this show, The Seat. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, uh, the words, or, or being beastly to the speaker, I don't know, <laughs> or, or the speaker's wife. I don't know, one of those, um, one of those things. Well, that's perfect. Good question and a good answer. We could keep the question short, and we'll try and zip through as many as we can. Uh, do we have any more questions on the floor for Tim Lawson? Yes, Alan. Tim. Alan. Do you regret... <laughs> Do you regret leaving banking to go into politics, or do you think you should have stayed in banking? Do you regret leaving banking to go into politics, or should you have stayed in banking? No, of course, I, I'm a nerd. I joined the Conservative Party at the tender age of 14, just after Mrs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've merited any mirth. <laughs> I joined the Young Conservatives, a fine band of men and women playing ping-pong and dating back in the 1970s, just after Mr Thatcher had become um, Prime Minister. So I did all the sort of youth politics. I did university politics. I came to London, got involved in local um, politics and you know, did it tolerably well. And so I always had a, a, a game plan that I quite liked to go into politics. I was lucky enough, particularly... <laughs> yeah, very, very good. <laughs> There's an MP who knows his place. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And one of the MPs who was barracking Nick Clegg earlier at question time. So uh, It's his leaflet you used. It was. It was, the, it was his leaflet I used. That I got anyway, back to banking. So I did, I did all, all that. So I, did, I, I worked for a, for a bank. It wasn't one that got into any trouble. And I left banking in the year 2000. And um, that was probably the right time to, to leave. So I always wanted to do politics. But one thing I, I said, I mean, if you look at it now, there are... So three hated groups of people in society now. One of them is politicians, one of them is bankers, and one of them is probably social workers. Okay, well, I'm a politician and used to work for a bank, and I was the minister responsible for social workers, so <laughs> I trebly felt everybody's pain in that, uh, that respect. So, of course, I don't um, regret leaving, uh, leaving banking, other than when I occasionally have lunch with my still banking uh, friends uh, who are considerably... Uh, wealthier than I am. That's <laughs> not what's important in life, is it? Don't tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got time for a couple more questions from the floor. Do you have any more? Uh, yes, the gentleman over there, what's your name? Uh, my name's Simon. Simon. The, the uh, Tory education question, I guess, is the lurking one. Uh, were you surprised and disappointed at the way you were treated? Were you surprised and disappointed at the way you were treated? By? Uh, the, the Tory education Twitter account. Well, I think we're all treated... Um, quite unfairly by quite a lot of um, anonymous Twitter accounts. I just think anybody who uses a Twitter account to come out with loads of fairly malicious charges and hides behind the anom- uh, anonymity of, of that is pretty cowardly. And that's one of the disadvantages of social, um, social media. But, um, Did it surprise you, though? Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it's politics, a rough and tumble of uh, politics. I'm pleased that I think I did quite a lot in my short time in ministerial office and did an awful lot, I think, in my time as a shadow um, minister, for which um, I got some recognition and people realised that you know, we did it for the very best of reasons. So as far as I'm concerned, my reputation is something that I've achieved. Speak for themselves. And if certain people want to be trolls on, uh, on Twitter, then you know, that's, for, that's for them. Do you get much abuse on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ever tempted to reply to it? Do you ever reply to it? Yeah. <laughs> And that's why I was the subject of a police investigation for uh, six months. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. Unfairly, in my months. view. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bloody right it was unfair. Well, yeah. It was outrageous. 
But it was, it, I mean, you get these people, and I think anyone who does, certainly I do a late night phoning on Talk Sport and get. I know, I, got, I listened to one of your Talk Sport phones the other day. Oof. Is this true, or is this. Is this <laughs> do you remember Jonathan in Swansea? <laughs> yeah, I do remember Jonathan in Swansea. So was it you? Because I, you know, I just, let's just give him the script. You said, Jonathan in Swansea, I don't like you. You're the worst presenter on radio ever. <laughs> You're a talentless liar, a shameless jelly spine mush mind, voice of the establishment, new labour Blairite talk spittle. You're the reason we had the riots. <laughs> that's right, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a truncated version of a, of a, of a seven. Are you on minute. Twitter as well? You are, Matt. I am. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I get I get tons of abuse, or I used to get a lot of abuse on there. But I think after a while, you get a certain amount of abuse, and you take it a bit personally. And then something just changes, and I just find it all hilarious. I enjoy getting abuse on Twitter. I've got the the thing to do with abuse, and it's actually Martin Neri taught me um, this. Who came and advised us in the department room? I've got huge um, respect. When you get some really abusive. Uh, tweets against you, you retweet them. Yeah. And unless they're really, really got some really foul words uh, in them, because my daughter's on Twitter, um, then you just retweet them. And then you usually get a whole barrage of people going, how on earth can people treat you like that? That's outrageous. And then they all start barraging on that on that person. <laughs> and occasionally they'll come back and say, oh, it was a bit harsh. <laughs> um, that is the best way to, to deal with some yeah. of those Twitter, Twitter trolls, frankly. Just throw it back at them and throw it out there. I think it's fascinating. Uh, it just... Because I think we presume that politicians and MPs have a rhino-like hide that they're not affected by anything. And I know from working in politics that sometimes they are, and they certainly don't publicly show it. But I think people feel like they can abuse, particularly politicians, like they can abuse no other. I mean, yeah. does it ever get through? Do you ever feel, oh, for crying out loud, I'm just trying to do my job here. Yeah. No, and I think, the, the, I mean, obviously people who come to a show like this and, and come to it are people who have an interest in, uh, in politics. And I think, you know, what most of us would agree is that there are 650 members of parliament who have to be a little bit weird to do the job they're doing. But by and large, they are ordinary, decent human beings who are doing their job because they want to change things, they want to do good by their constituents, and mostly they work bloody hard. I mean, most MPs will, will work, apart from some of them. <laughs> most, MPs, most MPs work will be very sober and never <laughs> and will work bloody hard on behalf of their constituents and and yeah okay thank you and then and then you know people can argue with our views they can write to us and say you are destroying families by the bedroom tax or or whatever okay we can take that on the nose and we can argue this is why we're doing it blah 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 but I think what, what MPs get really pissed off about is when they accuse us of being lazy and not doing our job mm. um, seriously and spending all our long recesses on Caribbean beaches or, or whatever. Now, that would be great if our 91,000 constituents all went on a 12-week holiday over the, the summer. M MPs are a 365-day-a-year service. My, so my biggest email postbag is on Boxing Day. <laughs> where constituents have had quite enough of Auntie Mabel and the, um, the mother-in-law and think, right, I'm going to write to my, cons my uh, MP um, and get very irate when you don't reply on Boxing Day to their instantaneous um, email. So 
you know, MPs do a difficult job, and there are some people who think that it is fair game to be abusive to MPs. Now, I've been an MP for 16 years, and when you're first there, you are a real keeny, and you are so nice to everybody. After 16 years, you think, what the hell? So <laughs> if they're going to be rude to you, yeah. they're going to get it back. And there are very few people who are gratuitously rude um, to you. Um, and usually what happens, they will write you and say, you know, you're a whatever, blah, 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 and you'll write back and say, well, I think you're a whatever. And say, you can't say that. <laughs> Why not? You know, that's, our, that's outrageous. People think they have a God-given right to be rude to MPs just because you're a, uh, an MP. And so why should you, why should you take it? I'll tell you because good. I was rude right. back to one of my constituents. <laughs> <laughs> and I had one constituent who was gratuitously and offensively rude to me over a long time, as well as local councillors, everybody, on his blog and in, um, when he came to see me and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, we finally had enough and said, you know, you, I've had enough of this poisonous bollocks, I think was the phrase I used. The next thing I knew, he'd gone to the police <laughs> to accuse me of being grossly offensive under the Electronic Communications Act 1988. <laughs> and a six-month police investigation uh, ensued, at the end of which it was found there was no case to answer. And many, many thousands of pounds, seven police officers and a very stupid chief constable um, later, um, I was entirely vindicated, on the back of which I sacked that constituent. <laughs> the first time it has ever been um, done. I'll take one more question and ask for a, a quick question and a, and a quick reply. Is there anyone up on the balcony that hasn't got one in? I thought we were going to talk about tower block and all that. You said. completely misled me. I don't know. No, no, no. I thought, that, I thought that might come out in the, in the, in the, in the questions. Um, there was a hand down here. Yes, what's your name, mate? <coughs> Simon. Given the Conservatives were unable to win a majority in 2010 against a particularly unpopular government, how do you expect the Conservatives, or what do you think the Conservatives need to do to win a majority in 2015, and do you think they need to do more to shake off the nasty party tag? Can the Conservatives win in 2015? Do they need to shake off the nasty party okay. tag? Well, I, I think the nasty party tag was a bit of a misnomer, yeah. and I think it Wait. was over... <laughs> I think it was overdone, and it was Theresa May who controversially mm. came up with that, uh, with that phrase, which was, um, you can see why, you can see where it's coming from, and we did have a, an image problem, absolutely, and still do have, to an extent, a, uh, an image um, a problem, but I think you can overdo it, and I think the next election, but I would say that anyway, is absolutely wide open, because we have got some new players. We have got UKIP as a fourth party who will be a factor in the, uh, in the next election. I don't think they're going to win probably any seats or great rafter seats, but I think they're going to have a chunk of vote which will tip the balance in certain um, constituencies. But if you take my constituency, UKIP did very well in the county council elections. I lost three Conservative seats to UKIP. We won all the Liberal seats, and the Liberal vote collapsed, and the Labour vote they did worse than, than last time. A lot of Liberal and Labour people who are fed up with them went to UKIP. So whatever the Conservatives do, will UKIP pick up other votes as well? They're picking up a lot of Conservative votes, but they're picking up some of the other, some of the other votes. And there are lots of different dynamics going on in different parts of the, of the country. And I think the Liberals will do relatively well. I think their vote will go down substantially, but I think they'll hold quite a lot of their existing seats because they're really good at defending their little sort of fortresses. So they can lose a load of votes without necessarily losing, losing their, their seats. 
I think they're going to do badly against Labour in many northern seats where you know, some tactical voters will go back to, uh, uh, to Labour. What's going to happen in Conservative Liberal um, seats and how much an effect will UKIP have? So I think there will be some very strange results. But the biggest factor is when people go into the polling station to vote, and it's always surprising how many people don't actually know the, who they're going to vote for until they actually go down the, go down the path, they are saying, right... Who is going to be the next government? Who's going to be the next Prime Minister? Is David Cameron up to being Prime Minister? Well, like him or not, he has been Prime Minister. The, the, the Western world hasn't fallen in uh, around us. He can be Prime Minister. Ed Miliband? Oh. Can he, be, can he be Prime Minister? There's a doubt. Now, in the next two years, Ed Miliband, his biggest task is to show that he is Prime Minister um, material. And at this midpoint in a, a government's term... With all the factors going against us, today's opinion poll shows Labour three percentage points ahead. They need to be doing an awful lot better than that. But now there are not going to be boundary changes, so mm. Labour does better on the old boundaries. How is that going to work for them? The county council elections, they were streets ahead in certain northern seats. They were nowhere in certain southern seats that they would need to take. So it absolutely is wide open, and the biggest factor is the economy. And a lot of reasons, the reason a lot of people are feeling frustrated and turning to extremists in UKIP at the moment is because the economy is not good. If the economy does start to turn around and there's perception that actually things do, perhaps they were right, we really have had to, to do austerity and we can see some light at the end of the tunnel, then people might say we're prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. Remember in 1992, we'd been through a horrendous um, recession, but people could start to see some glimmers optimism and John Major as you said earlier Matt got 14 and a half million votes on a high turnout the biggest um, ever and one final story on um, sport ballot papers a mate of mine from Nottinghamshire who stood in the county council elections many years ago he was not a bad looking guy and he shagged his way around his ward <laughs> to, get, to get selected and it came to the came to the count and he and the Labour candidate were absolutely tied. And there was one sport ballot on the basis that against his name, it had a big smiley face with, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly somebody, he had canvassed more than just knocking on the door. <laughs> and the returning officer deemed that that was an invalid vote. And late into the night, it was discounted. So therefore, it was a dead heat. So when it's a dead heat, they toss a coin. And they tossed a coin, and the Labour candidate won. My mate took it to court. And eventually, the judge ruled that a smiley face that said, yes, please, <laughs> was a clear indication of support for the Conservative candidate, and the result was overturned, and he became the counter counsel. <laughs> what an incredible story. Well, but don't repeat that anywhere <laughs> when you're voting. It's safer to just put an X in the Conservative box. <laughs> Well, we've, we've come to the end of uh, another remarkable night, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming. Um, before we uh, thank everyone at the venue and everyone at Avalon who's made this possible, I should say that the next show is on the 12th of June, where my guest will be the former Home Education and Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw. Um, so do book your tickets for that as soon as you can. I'll be on the 12th of June uh, in this very room. But please, ladies and gentlemen, for giving us more than enough laughs, a fascinating insight into ministerial life. This is Tim Walker.
Well, there you go. That was Tim Lawton, candid, open and entertaining. And throughout the interview, I think he, he really relaxed into it and showed us particularly his passion about um, working for children and young people in the country. I think it's really important. So many people said to me afterwards, you know, I've never heard a Conservative speak like that before. And, of course, Conservatives speak like that all the time. I think there's a real problem that people just think all Tories are in a, you know, bred in a particular way and, and think in a particular way and don't see Conservatives in the same way that they might see Labour and Liberal Democrat MPs as going into politics out of public service, which, of course, they do. So it's been one of the greatest successes, really, I think, of the show, was to just force people to think. And everyone that was there, and hopefully everyone listens to the podcast, will have that moment when they're having a discussion with someone and someone will make a general comment about the Tory party where people can say, actually, I met Tim Lawton, I've heard him speak, and he's not like that. And it just makes you question yourself about the prejudices we have, whoever we support, and whatever our ideology is, makes us question our approach to the opposition and our approach to politics in general. And it can only be a good thing that we have our eyes opened by people like Tim about his passion and other conservative passions for making the country a better place. So he was a marvellous guest. He was as candid as I hoped he would be. And he was thoroughly entertaining. So once again, thanks for downloading it. If you enjoy it, please share it with your pals. Thanks to everyone who's been coming down to the gigs. My next guest is Jack Straw, which... uh, I'm really excited about, it goes without saying, that's on the 12th of June, Wednesday the 12th of June at the St James Theatre. Then after that, I'm doing a special one-off for the British Library on Euston Road in London, such a prestigious venue, as part of their propaganda exhibition and series. So um, those tickets are on sale now as well. We'll be going to Edinburgh in August, and then I should be back at the St James Theatre in September. So tickets are available on the website www.stjamestheatre.co.uk or just log on to my website www.mapford.com for news about the British Library date and who the guest will be and for Edinburgh tickets and all the rest of it. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.